Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pop Life, a new TIR Presents show where we're going to take a deep, more fun dives into different aspects of pop culture, movies, and, of course, something I spent a long time doing, music. Don't forget, if you like what you're seeing or hearing, please hit like, subscribe, and that notification bell so whenever we go live, you are alerted. Um, like I always say on the main show, we're constantly adding new shows to the channel. So hit that bell so you can stay notified. Now, our guest today, some of you may know, um, is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. He made the movie Athens, Georgia, Inside Out, that documented the alternative music scene in Athens, Georgia in the mid-80s a scene that spawned the likes of R.E.M., the B-52s, and more. But Bill's story doesn't end with music or film. Bill has also worked for several years in electoral politics. I wanted to talk to Bill about his journey from small-town punk to big-city political machine guy. So please welcome Bill Cody. Hello. <laughs> good to see you, Jason. It's always good to see you. It's it's good to see you on screen. I wish I could have spent more time with you in real life in New York. Uh, right when we were done with the show, there was a, a, a old punk from, uh, I believe he was from Alabama. Yeah. And he stopped me and he was like, you said you have a friend here from Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> I got to meet this guy. Because I think he, we know some of the same people, and you know, you were uh, like a thief in the night. You were you were gone to the wind. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, it, was, it was a fun day, but I, uh, um, yeah. Um, anyway, I wish I had stayed and said hello. And uh, so let's get let's get into it. Because um, I've, I've I've been reciting my life recently, and I'm like, well, that's insane, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I mean, you I, just showed you just showed that clip of George talking, and I thought mm -hmm. that was funny because uh, 
So my my first job in Hollywood, I, I worked for this. Um, I don't think I've talked to you that much about it, but I worked for this uh, screenwriter filmmaker that some of you may know uh, by the name of John Milius. He um, was uh, a very interesting character and a big part of uh, uh, like he wrote Apocalypse Now. He wrote the uh, um, he wrote over the phone the uh, the scene about the. Uh, the battleship in Jaws. He wrote the <laughs> last draft of Empire Strikes Back, but his name's not. Wow. He also wrote Dirty Harry one and two. And oh, um, geez. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and when I was there, uh, we did Red Dawn, and uh, my hand is in Red Dawn. It's also in uh, it's also in Rambo two. Give your cheese. Were you were you pretty... freeing a prisoner of war in Rambo two? Is that what your hand is doing? No, actually, I played. Uh, I, I um, shared. We did some inserts, and I shared a dressing room with uh, Sylvester Stallone. He was uh, having his um, scars removed, and they were making my hand up to look Vietnamese. And um, uh, I, I pointed a gun at him, and then um, the character actually gets killed by Rambo. Uh, mm. But I, I didn't get killed by Sylvester. He's a you got killed by stunt double. He was actually very pleasant that that day, and uh, but it was a it was pretty it was a it was a very interesting office. And I uh, at one point um, there was a studio that Francis Ford Coppola had in Hollywood, and it got foreclosed on. So they moved in, and we called them the uh, we called them the Zoetrope Boat People. And I'm still actually in touch with some of them, like Fred Roos. I've done work with who was his producer and. Um, just a lot of craziness. And, um, at the same time I was at the groundlings at night and, uh, that's where I met a bunch of other friends that I knew from back then. And, uh, and then a bunch of things happened and I made Athens, Georgia inside out with my friend, Tony Gayton and, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, it's funny cause I just moved here to Athens and a lot of people here, uh, moved to Athens because of the film. And it's funny. I, I don't, I, I know it, to a lot of people, it's a seminal film. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it and you can see it. Uh, and then the first since one then, is hard to find. It, it, I tried to find, I tried to get the first one and uh, to kind it's of. It's apparently if you go on, um, if you have, um, it's on one of the free services right now that you get. Tubi has the sequel. Yes. But and that's they don't have the first one. The first one is now, I don't know if that just happened, but somebody was telling me you can watch it on uh, Freevee or one of those new one, one of those oh, new okay. weird streaming services. No, we don't have all that down here in Mexico, man. I have to. <laughs> Sorry. About and, it, and it's, and, and, and I was, I wasn't going to bug you. And so I found some clips and I wish I would have made a clip of, of young Bill, Bill Cody. Uh, <laughs> with Much darker hair. Um, oh Yeah. There, there, but there were some clips, and I had more hair. Uh, uh, hey, that's a lot of us sing that same tune. <laughs> <laughs> but first things first, let's go back. You know, we already okay. started too far ahead. We have to like ease them into the Red Dawn stories because I have my own, you know, love hate affair with Red Dawn. Bill, how did you get started in the filmmaking? Did you just go from band dude to the dude that was going to document bands? What inspired you to even make Inside Out? It actually reminded me a bit of the Penelope Spears documentary series, Decline of a Western Civilization. 
um, where that's her you know, document of the Southern California uh, punk scene into the hair metal scene and into, you know, the gutter well, punk scene, I guess, with the third one, which never well, got for, a theatrical release. Well, first of all, I, I love Penelope's movie. And, and if you're a punk fan and you get into all the ins and outs of that and who was in it, um, mm-hmm. I don't really care about that. A bunch of my pals are in it. Um, but uh, I originally went to Los Angeles to work in comic acting. And then I, a friend of mine wrote this movie and I ended up working for John and living on a piece of property with John. But uh, a bunch of things happened. John, John, John Milius. Yeah. Okay, John Milius. Okay. And um, a bunch of things happened. And I, I uh, the story of Athens, Georgia is uh my friend tony gaten and i we were giant fans of errol morris and he had made he had made a film called vernon florida Mm -hmm. and our whole concept was to make vernon florida with music interesting and we did a bunch of um you know it's a long time ago so we went and recorded a bunch of stories and then we would act we once we got we got the money from uh, a boxing promoter and um <laughs> was it mob related? <laughs> no, it's Shelly Finkel who had uh, all those kids and he had uh, he had Mike Tyson for a while and um uh anyway, I was I, it's a long story but uh uh he 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 came to Athens he goes it's just like Hate Ashbury and um <laughs> okay. Not so we made the film and uh uh, and it's it's funny because back then, you know, documentaries, it was a different world and they did not play theaters. We played six weeks in New York and uh, there was also a contest on MTV. And the first the first six episodes of 120 minutes were uh, win a weekend in Athens, Georgia. And uh, <laughs> and I just saw something they somebody put up the other day because I've been in Athens and there's been some interesting screenings, but somebody posted this thing. I think it was REM posted it of uh, Bill and and uh, Bill Bear, uh, not Bill, uh, Peter and Mike were on MTV talking about the movie and it was really cool and I'd never seen it before, and uh, you know um, those guys were uh, it's Athens is a very special town I don't know if people have read everybody should read Cool Town by Grace Hale she's a professor at University of Virginia. But just kind of the history, starting out with the B-52s and Pylon and then R.E.M. And then, you know, and all the bands are very different. And then Widespread Panic, then the Elephant Six bands and, you know, um, Neutral Milk Hotel. And it's just none of them are the same, but they're all the same if you know them. So that's what's kind of cool about the town. And But we 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 made the movie. It It blew up. Uh, very big but i i was <laughs> i was a bit of a different person then and uh it was the uh, 80s you get that pass for the 80s i guess i don't you know <laughs> like that's all we have to in 2023 all you have to say right now was that ah, was the 80s yeah it was the 80s well <laughs> you're, you're you're allowed uh 15 uh, mulligans for the 80s depends on who you talk to my ex-girlfriend might not agree with you but uh, <laughs> not probably not at all Um, (laughs) and watching that so you did that movie in 86 am i correct uh we started the research in 85 we shot it in 86 it it mostly came out across the country in 87 because back then it bicycled around 
So most of 87, it was out. And uh, then it came out on video two or three years later. And it was out of print for a while. Mm-hmm. And actually, there was a guy, somebody, when it came on DVD, somebody said, you know, there's a guy in Wisconsin. He's not going to be able to make his house payments next year. Um, I should have been more on top of that. But there was a guy in Wisconsin who was uh, <laughs> making them up when it was out of print. And uh, wow, it was funny. Um, a friend of mine is a guy by the name of Steve Gagan, who uh, wrote Syriana and um, a bunch of movies. He's directed some. And I was over at his house and he was like, my friends and I watched it every Friday night and I still have the copy. And he showed me there's a bootleg. And I was like, Oh, we lost bill. I, I guess you talk about bootlegging too much. <laughs> what, what happened? What did Georgia do to you? I don't know. I, nothing. It, 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 it loaded and then reloaded. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, so anyway, I said, I said, you owe me four bucks. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> dude, that's a bootleg. That's not my, you know, um, but I, I, you know, it's, it's a real honor when people are really inspired by, by a piece of art that you make. And um, I don't, I don't know what to say to that half the time when people are like, you know, this changed my life. And, uh, you know, and sometimes I'm like, you know, I did other movies. I was at Sundance and, um, so um yeah so uh but that movie really touched a lot of people and moved a lot of people but mostly because of the people involved i mean um uh yeah i mean it's it's just a special film because there's a lot of special people in it and you know um it was the right time to film rem and it was the right time and and Probably would have made more money if the movie was just about REM, but I think the reason the movies lasted so long and played theaters off and on for years and museums and things is because it is about the city and not about REM. And, uh, uh, of course, they blew up and became a pretty big band. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, this is kind of during their, I would say, college radio ascendancy. Would you agree? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It was... um, is right before they did uh, Life's Rich Pageant, and then they did Document, which that's when they really blew up. So, and and the B fifty twos, while you know, I think Rock Lobster and some of the more larger songs are already out. They still don't hit that ridiculous height of with Love Shack and all that other stuff in eighty eight, eighty nine. Yeah, well, they were never quite as big as REM, but. Uh, the B-52s just played their last touring show and um, they are going to do a residency in Las Vegas because I think they got offered a lot of money, but um, yeah. they did their last, they did their last show here. And um, it was, it was really special to see. There was a, a cocktail party the day before and like everybody from Athens was there mm-hmm. of a certain group. And, um, you know, it was really, they're a very special band because I, can't think of another band that um they still play uh the b-52s to kindergarten first and second grade classes and kids dance to them (laughs) and you can't meet anyone who's you know under 95 who hasn't danced to them at a wedding yeah Uh, that's it's kind of amazing but the other part is you know when we did the film ricky had just died Mm. um and 
at first they weren't going to be in it. And then they called up and said, we hear there's a party going on and we want to join. And they showed up and, uh, and we used some old footage, but, um, you know, to have your main songwriter die and he's the brother of one of your lead singers, it was really traumatic for them and for them to come back and have that monster album after that. Monster and have, album. Yeah. Monster I mean, it's, album. it's, yeah, it's just really, it's, it's a great story and um, there's going to be, they're doing a documentary about them, which is long overdue and um, they're very, uh, um, you know, they get a lot of credit for um, changing the way people look at uh, kind of outsiders and things like that. And, they're fantastic. I mean, they're just a really special group of people. So, um, now I want to ask you a little bit about this this era and this moment in Athens before we move on to to your film life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're doing this movie in the mid '80s, which is kind of the rise of probably what we would call new wave. It's kind of the end of new wave the beginning of college rock i think for certain aspects all to me a lot of that is like tomato it's like whatever you want to call it is what it's gonna yeah be. yeah absolutely there's, there's sense well, now, now, they call, now they call it post-punk so you know which is which is also weird because i i did a show and i don't know if you know him he was in a band called the march violets from the uk and i believe he lives in georgia but not athens he's in atlanta okay um, we used to deal with the the dude that did the booking for all the the post punk. Um, oh, cool! Wow. Uh, bands, you know, so like Susie Sue and and uh, and uh, of course the Violets. Oh God, Gang, gang of Four. No, oh, not Gang. He didn't have Gang of Four. He had uh, Bauhaus. Um, okay. All the British cats. So, um, who am I thinking of? The band Killing Joke. Okay. Like all those all those cats. So we would yeah. sometimes open for for some of the OGs and you know as you've sat at a table with me you can only imagine um <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there picking the brains of everybody doing what we're doing right now. Um and you, you know that when I think of Athens I think of those two main bands and you know you go deeper into bands like Widespread Panic but you know, for me, remembering that moment, it, it felt like college radio, and maybe it had a lot to do with it, with MTV kind of centering Athens as this place where important music was going to be. Because, right, that was the difference between 120 minutes and Headbangers Ball, right? One was supposed to be important music, and, and the other was for, for stoned out degenerates. And uh, why didn't Athens become a centerpiece like Seattle? Oh, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that, because I grew up in Seattle and um, I know a bunch of those people a little bit. I, I mostly know those guys through their worship of the meat puppets, because those <laughs> are top of mine. And, um, you know, see, those guys in Seattle wanted to be rock stars and they became rock stars. But the other thing I think about Seattle and what's great about Athens and why Seattle kind of. Um, and to me, why there's a continuum with Athens and why Seattle was like way bigger. And yet now there's not much going on there mm-hmm. is they really created a sound. There is a Seattle sound. I know they hate saying that sometimes they talk about grunge, but 
you know, that sound that uh, Soundgarden made and Green River and, uh, um, you know, that those early bands. Um, the early sub-pop bands. The early sub-pop bands. It's like, and even Alice in Chains sounds like that. I mean, they you had think a so? sound. Oh yeah, if you put on the first, if you put on the last Green River record and then seek it, you know, disc yeah. jockey seek it into uh, the the first Alice in Chains record, you can't tell the difference. I always they, they became a different band. They all became different bands. It's it's interesting that you say that you you hear a continuing through line between a lot of that music because for me, a lot of it stems from punk. I definitely think it's a continuation of hardcore punk. Mm-hmm a hardcore punk with a different name. Right. Um, but maybe because I wasn't there in the early days like you, because for me, the Melvins don't sound like Soundgarden, which doesn't sound like. Which, that, I was just talking to somebody that you have to throw the Melvins out because by the time it was the mid eighties, the Melvins had already moved to California mm-hmm. and the Melvins are a very different, they're their own thing. Yeah. And I was, it's weird because there's been so many people in my life and, and not in my life, but adjacent to it, pass away the last year. It's been really crazy. And um, uh, a good friend of mine who was in a band called um, Green Jello and yeah. then had become Green Jelly because they got sued. And, um, and I, had just, I had just made a change in my life. So I was like, you know figuring out some things and uh anyway they call me up and they go we have a ticket for you you're gonna go see our friends um uh it was it was literally the height of uh guar who, <laughs> who, who were pals with with them and i don't know if you know but members of tool were in green jello too and uh so they drug me down to this venue in in los angeles the palladium and it was like 4,000 overweight kids from Orange County were all there of different stripes, like Latinos, Samoans, you know, it was like, and that all going nuts to Guar. And um, the Melvins were opening. And after every song, the kids would go nuts and the whole building shook and they were going, Guar, Guar, Guar. And Buzz, who's, Buzz is a very funny man. He kept walking up to the mic. He goes, "F you, little, you know." Dude. He goes, "He goes, we're Guar's never playing tonight because we're never leaving the stage. You're stuck with us. We're not leaving." And then they would launch into another song. And this happened after every song. This fight between Buzz mm-hmm. and these four thousand uh, kids who are just waiting to, uh, you know, get people spewing. Uh, you know, goo and fake vomit and blood on top of them. And then, uh, you know, and I had one of those kids uh, hit me. I was way in the back and one of them came flying out from the front mm-hmm. at, a, at a, you know, very quick speed. And uh, I got squished by him and I had to go up, uh, you know, and uh, anyway, so, um, <laughs> so I saw a bar and I was dragged there, but I, I had a, I had this love for the Melvins that night. They was just like, Oh my God. And then, you know, I've met Buzz over the years, but Buzz, those guys, they were they weren't part of the Seattle scene because they weren't up there. You know, mm-hmm. they left very early on. Although they had a big imprint on the scene, and obviously uh, a big imprint on Nirvana because they're from Aberdeen, and uh, mm-hmm. um, they lent them their van and stuff. And uh, and I don't know if you've ever been to Aberdeen, but it's uh, 
there's a reason why people want to get out of Abbey. Been through it. Been through it. There right. was one year we played six or seven shows in Washington State. Okay. And, uh, and I, I I believe we played Olympia, Seattle, Bellingham, Bremerton. Name You're on the obscure college circuit. Uh, we played, <laughs> we played uh, a place called Clarkston. And uh, and okay. another place in the Tri Cities that I can't think of the name of. Maybe it was wow. six shows. Yeah, yeah, too many shows in Washington State. Well, it, that that was a good time to be in Washington State because all those colleges, if you knew that circuit, you know, that's a little bit of that kind of uh, Riot Girl uh, uh, K Records kind of circuit that you're talking about, isn't it? Or is sure. It? I mean, we were, we, you know, we we. Me and my ex played weird, arty, electronic right. shit. So it was, you know, we were playing. Well, those places all had like weird parties and odd little venues, and it's an art gallery slash. Venue. Oh, Tacoma! We played. We played an art oh, gallery okay. in Tacoma because he said art. Oh, yeah. We played a little art space in Tacoma on that on that run. I'll never. That's for some reason. That's the one thing I remember that run, and that run was four and a half months straight. Wow! Till the van blew up. Yeah. <laughs> It must have been fun, though. It's all, yeah. You know, you look back on it. I have memories of it behind me because I do look back on it fondly, um, as I'm sure you know. You look back on your your days with this uh, fondly, um, but you know, it's it's hard, and that's kind of one of the things that you hear people say in the in the first documentary, talking about the the difficulty trying to be in a in a rock band in the mid '80s when you're touring a college circuit and you know, you don't have mainstream success, and well, the two bands that made the the circuit that they still use now is Black Flag and and REM. Mm-hmm. You know, they literally carved that circuit out by touring in the you know early to mid '80s, and a lot of those venues are still there. You know, some of them have gone away, but um, you know they've been replaced by other things. You know, yeah, and so. That uh, a lot of people owe those guys a lot, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, there's other bands, too. I mean, I'm not, not going to say it was just them, but I was talking to Vanessa from Pylon about that because they were kind of mm-hmm. stuck in the middle because mm-hmm. the B-52s went to New York and that was a place you could blow up from New York and Los Angeles. Yeah, you didn't you didn't have to get in a van. <laughs> and then there was this kind of mid area that was like Pylon, Mission of Burma. And there weren't the venues for them to play. So if they went out on tour to promote, you know, they had some long van trips in between. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, probably why Pylon and Mission and Burma aren't more famous, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I was, we were talking uh, with, I was talking with someone, uh, maybe it was at the live show because uh matt leck from majority report and and left mm-hmm. reckoning is from uh north dakota right. i played too many shows i don't even know the number of shows i played in north dakota it's got to be around 20 and wow. he just kind of stared at me you know they always people always look at me and kind of shake their head you know south dakota too i played all those places because when you play seattle as a seattle native the next major metropolitan area east minneapolis is minneapolis that's 15 <laughs> 
hundred miles. Unless you go south to Boise and back up. Yeah. Yeah. We're still, it ain't close. No, No, I've had friends do that, that circuit. And it's crazy. Um, it's funny. I just saw, I have, I'm pals with the black lips because I made that movie where we toured the middle East and, I just saw they're playing a bunch of European dates, and out of the blue, they're playing in Wyoming. And I'm like, why? And I call Jared up and go, why are you playing a one single date in Wyoming? I'm guessing Jackson Hole. Probably it's, yeah, it's ski season. They probably got offered a lot of money to play, like, yeah, ski season or something. Um, Hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's the only reason why you're playing Wyoming. You're playing Jackson Mm -hmm. Hole, unless you're me and. <laughs> You're playing you like Cheyenne on a Wednesday. Wow. <laughs> that if I if I never have to drive through Wyoming again, I'm I'm going to be okay with that. Now, see, because you always kind of play this off, but you know, I, I was good friends with DH, who's one of my friends who passed away last year, and mm-hmm. he didn't Shout talk about it. He didn't yeah. talk. He didn't talk about it a lot, but every once in a while, he'd talk about like. It is hard to play in certain styles of music and be black. It yeah. just was back then, you know? And um, that had that had to have been weird at times, you know, playing, you know, because I, I know your your music and it's not uh, you know, you're not you're not playing R and B exactly. No, no, I'm not you know, sadly I'm not gonna be in front of a crowd that of people that looks like me. The last tour I did, um because of the opener or not the opener because of the headliner we played in front of a lot more people of color which was such an odd thing for me sometimes i would stop the show and be like hey this is the first time this ever happened to me i'm weirded out by it but um you, you know speaking like of, scary. i i still am, i've been trying to piece this together uh-huh. of like because i still don't know what it was but dh had this side band called Peligro. And they yeah. were border, they were borderline death metal, and he couldn't get any other of his friends to go to this event. And it was out in like San Bernardino. Okay, it that was, could be why. It, it was like a. It wasn't like it was a concert, but it wasn't a concert. It was like a a fair or something. And all the bands were most of the bands were death metal, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was all these long haired white, like you know, because they were listening mm-hmm. to you know not not even like carcass and bolt thrower they were listening to band like these bands were all they were all bands right yeah and it was all, oh yeah and i'm i'm out there with dh and he plays and the only other people i knew out there was dr no with uh brandon cruz who went on to join the dead kennedys they were playing there for some reason but it was all these teen kids Mm-hmm. And I'm out there with, with DH and I'm like, what is this? And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm playing this. And 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 they had sets where they they had like five stages, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, he was on at like seven o'clock, and there were like bands before him and after them. And to this day, I don't know what it was, why we were out there, uh, ex- other than no one else would go with him except for me. But uh <laughs> You know, I mean, I had a great time. I love, I loved hanging out with DH, but I was like, you know, and I kept asking, what, what is this we're doing? And he's just like, I oh, just come along, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's a ride. Just come for it's a ride. It's a ride. Yeah. So, um, if you, if you ever played one of those, just let me know what that is later in the chat box. Um, I, <laughs> I, 
um we sometimes would get grouped with those there was one year that people kept uh booking us with singer songwriters and okay. man we pissed those people off <laughs> sometimes we play with the death metal people but overall um until we got to open for god flesh that was when we kind of started getting booked a little more properly with more bands of our ilk and we were actually slated to open for um killing joke okay and then they the guitar player broke his arm or something so they pulled the whole u.s tour and it was just like (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's god flesh were they on were they on earache yep yep they were on earache and uh by the time we met him i think justin's totally independent at this point i think they're just you know do it themselves um, i could see that it's and, funny Na- napalm death just played here like a couple months ago at the 40 watt and i'm like those guys gotta be you know because i'm getting old they gotta be pretty old yeah, um, in 50s. yeah so those dudes are all in their 50s and they're still they're still going uh, hard as hell you know i'm seeing um I was talking to some friends that were in the they're in the 80s thrash scene because you know that's that's you know my my bag and i got to be friends with those guys living at that studio and uh a lot of them went overseas they're still doing it i do want to ask you that kind of as a side note before we get back into your your journey um it feels like nostalgia is probably the only thing that's really selling right now and guaranteed to sell and i don't really see well i haven't seen artist development in a long time you know stevie wonder had a lot of records before you get to inner visions um you know bands got to have a lot of not so much hits before they really hit and i don't see that anymore and i definitely don't see a lot of new stuff um i know there's new artists but when it comes to like you know big stages and and, and promotion and all that other good stuff. Um, well, it, it's it's interesting right now because I do know a bit about some of the stuff that's going on right now, and and um, uh, there's 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 all these kind of little labels are the ones that yeah. do development. You know, like Saddle Creek develops certain types of acts, mm-hmm. and um, and I like some of their. I, I love this young lady from Asheville, Indigo D'Souza. And she was just out touring with Lucy Dacus. And I I think she's great too. You know, Matador's still around and Matador some of those. Still around. But um, you know, like and is Tucson on here or <laughs> she's always no, about no, it. Tucson's not here. It's just it's just uh, us, yeah. It's just us. Well, you were talking a little bit about like DJ Vlad last night and everything. And <laughs> I've, I've, I've gone down these wormholes, you know, about hip hop and there's all these kids that break online and they get signed by Atlantic and then they either go to jail or die. And, um, you know, they, they don't seem to do the development that kids do the development themselves, but then these big people swoop in uh, and then sign them and then give them way too much money. And then they can buy too many drugs and then who knows what happens. I agree with that. Um, And they don't, the, 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 the the, uh, labels don't seem to be out there taking care of them. No, and I don't think they care about them at all. I think they just look at them as disposable, which I'm not sure the kids realize that. But um, 
but yeah, they're not developed. I mean, you you look at the bands that are playing stadiums right now, and they're all you know, oh, uh, they're all well past their ARP cards, you know, onto uh, you know, it's I mean, if you look at the top two tours. It's, you know, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, you know, maybe if Billy Joel comes back or one of those people. Chili Peppers, you Chili know. Chili Peppers like, is going to be a big tour uh, every year. Um, I, I bring that up because it feels like there's no artist development because, like you said, you don't have to develop the artist, but you can just sign hype. And no one cares what the hype is from. If the hype is from you being a drug addict, drug dealer murderer um i've i've read or i watched a documentary about this stuff called scam rap scam rap i don't know that one i, I know drill rap but i don't know scam rap. oh this what is it, what this exactly is, is scam rap scam rap is this offbeat if i said dissonant that would be giving it too much credit like it was on purpose it's literally this offbeat thing where these kids just say the scams they're doing and they're not even rhyming i.e. there's a there's a cell phone scam there's instagram scams there's debit card scams and these kids are doing songs about the scams that they pull off and then they sell a scam bible wow <laughs> so it's, it's almost like a little to-do video you know do they have like little <laughs> It is. It is. Like, it's do, the, they, it's the do they do they afterwards? Do they say like, and if you send, you know, if you send in a cashier's check, I'll send you a book on how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> the whole the whole scam. The the thing that I found fascinating about the scam rap was that it was all a scam. Even them talking about the scams as a scam, because they're like, well, I made all this money off scams. I made like fifty thousand dollars in a day. I'm like, no, you didn't. Shut up. You're lying. You didn't. That's a lie. This is all hearsay. You didn't. And they don't get caught because they're not doing anything. Right. But see, see, that goes back to something we've talked about is it's like America's become really grifter culture. Hmm. And and unfortunately, where we've talked about it is, you know, there are people in politics who they know the right thing to sell. And mm -hmm. And they are, you know, a lot of people, I, I say it, it's like, you know, everybody wants a summer house unless you have one and then you, you don't want to take care of it like me and sell it. But um, I'm trying to watch, I'm trying to read a little of these comments. Um, oh, don't look at the comments, like man. The comments are a deadly place to keep your eye. Yeah, I know. I, I It's it's funny because I, I have watched a bunch of episodes recently and I understand why Pascal, I, I get Pascal's sense of humor, but people are like, he... Does he ever smile? Does he ever laugh? You know, and it's like he does, but he, he laughs all the time. He's reading the comments. If you can, if yeah. you can see it in his glasses, sometimes he's reading the comments. Um, by the way, that show last night was fantastic, and uh, you. you know, you, you, you're probably right. Nobody will watch that one, because no. <laughs> um, it was it was too legit. Um, anyway. Uh, so, so ask me some other questions and let's, uh, <laughs> let's Are you talk a fan about of scam rap? <laughs> if I find okay. that thing, if I find that thing, Bill, send, I'll, send I'll me shoot a link to it. Okay. I'll shoot so, you that thing. It's it's insane, man. It the whole documentary is about scams. And wow. to your point about a grifter culture in America, it was very interesting to me to watch this because none of this stuff is 
good in the sense of these aren't um, uh, confidence cons in 2023 shouldn't take place the way they're happening. Right. I can look up who you are like that. But people don't. They don't. That's that thing I was talking about. Like, I, I would like to do a segment at sometime where it's like, first I look at the purse and you just take whatever comes out, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out which song you should play, whether it should be the original Smokey version, the Contours version, or the Jay Giles version. They're all great. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of times, if you look at who this person was getting paid by, you can pretty much figure out what they're pitching. Yeah. And it, it goes back to, I was a, as a, as a, I was a weird kid in that I was like a, from the time I was like six and seven, I, I used to get these records. My parents used to buy them of WC Fields quotes and stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, people forget that, that they always remember the never give a sucker an even break. But the first half of that saying is you can't cheat an honest man. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole way scams work is you're leaning in trying to, to, to scam yourself. Yeah. And that's how the scam works. And that's why the saying is you can't cheat an honest man. So that's a, that's a, that's an interesting point. Cause a lot of these people, you know, it is a lot of get rich quick stuff, but what there was that woman, Anna Delvey or whatever her name was. And there's like two or three documentaries about her. And is none she, of is them. Is she the one who was a fake countess in New York? Or? Yeah, but it wasn't like she did anything. F- she just said that she was, and people just bought it. Yeah, and no, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't and anything. And it's funny. Extraordinary. Now she, she has a show that's. Uh, I just saw that the other day. She has a show that she does. Um, she's basically doing what. Uh, 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 what's his face did it, it? She's having people over for dinner and uh, uh, filming it. It's a show. Wow. I mean. It worked for uh, John uh, Favreau, so why not work for her? But you know? is that part of is is that the ultimate con though? She comes up with this stupid story, cons these rich people out of a, a little bit of money. It wasn't even that much money. That's why I also right. was like, why do I care about this? This isn't even like a fascinating. This isn't Elizabeth Holmes. This isn't that Sam Bankman uh, freed guy with no, the FTX. Just a- this she's is basically just, a professional friend. And those people have always been around. You know? That's the thing. If you watch what? movies from the 30s, like there's always the professional friend at the big like mansion, you know? We're uh, we're feeling bad. We're feeling bad. And, and I'm sure people watching this show aren't feeling bad, but we're saying collectively, right? We want, they want you to feel bad collectively when they talk about these scams and these cons about these people, as Bill is saying, that are professional friends because everybody is climbing the ladder of importance. This person wrote Bell Biv DeVoe. They had to work at kind people. Come on. <laughs> they were part of New Edition. Come on. Don't be putting down Bell Biv DeVoe. Don't ever put down <laughs> Bell Biv DeVoe on this show as I am a, a fam. A fam. You know? <laughs> uh, that first album was actually pretty good. You know, New Jack Swing was hey. it was a moment in time. Um, <laughs> hey, was I walking around with my clothes inside out? Maybe you know no reason not to and actually i think new i think new edition is actually you talk about nostalgia i think they're doing a big tour this summer um, oh it's the nostalgia circuit is huge because those are the people that have money yeah I no mean, it's true it's true your music goes towards who has money and who can afford drinks 
And as someone that worked in live music, actually doing the numbers every night for every venue from the uh, theaters that did major plays like Hamilton to, you know, 8,000 seaters to big festivals like Coachella. The only number that people really care about is, you know, dollar per head and who's drinking. And when you have a bunch of underage superstars headlining, ain't nobody coming there drinking and they don't like it. No. Hey, uh, Bader Meinhof, I agree with you. War is a scam. And hopefully you'll let people know that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really looking for where the peace movement went, you know, because it's pretty crazy out there right now. We did did a whole show with a with a anti-war activist. It's been an anti-war activist for some time. Another show that didn't get the. (laughs) 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 Uh, we, we won't get into that right now, but I, I do want to ask you, so you make this, you make this uh, documentary mm-hmm. and you go to LA, you're a legitimate filmmaker. Now you can get into some rooms. Um, I'm sure you're introduced as, Oh, this is my friend, Bill. He made that documentary on MTV, right? That, that happens to you probably for at least six years. No, what happened is, um, uh, I, I kind of fell off the face of the earth for a couple of years because I had to straighten out some things. So that would have been great, but that's not what happened. Um, uh, more like I used to, uh, <laughs> I used to go over to the set of full house and eat for free off my phone. <laughs> <back then. laughs> <laughs> that that that's where all that, that big showbiz money went. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's where it all went. And, uh, I was over there one time. Bob goes, you know, I don't mind you coming over here and eating craft services every day, but could you say hello once in a while? Like, <laughs> hello, Bob. Like, and Wednesday was hot meal day. Um, so, so, no, what happened is uh, I fell off the face of the earth, and then I, I I went to Seattle again and sat on the on, a, on the ground for a while, and then I went back to L.A. and I um, I wrote a script that almost went to the Sundance Lab and almost got made a bunch of times, and I wrote another script with this movie that went to Sundance called Slaves the Underground, and uh, you know wrote some other things, uh, and then what happened was. Um, I was doing some political things just for, you know, kicks. And um, mm. that's how I ended up in politics is Eric Garcetti uh, recruited me to work with him for uh, a campaign. And was it because I, Garcetti read the script? No, he'd heard, <laughs> he'd heard me talk about politics. But, you know, the funny thing about Eric, he was actually on uh, a bunch of he was a kid actor. He was on Adam 12. I didn't uh, know that. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Anyway, um, politics in a nutshell for you, right? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, I wrote for the Disney channel and I, I, I just realized the other day I was like working on a project with my friend, Joe Ramp, who became the head of story at Pixar, who was my, my dear, dear friend who passed away, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sorry to hear about that. No, it's okay. It was a while ago, but he, he, um, long story but I, i'm digging stuff out and remembering things from the other day but um 
yeah, so I did that. I, I wrote scripts and, um, but right after Athens, I worked at a post house and I wrote a script for full house that, uh, I should have just written more. Um, they liked it, but they didn't buy it. And, uh, um, and then over the years, I've made these documentaries. That's but that's mostly been fairly recently. We we Tony and I that made Athens. We had a film that took us twenty five years to finish about Dexter Romweber, who's in the movie called Two Headed Cow. Mm-hmm. If you get a chance to see that, all the reviews. It's it is a brilliant movie. It's just he wasn't you know, just one of those things. It wasn't the right thing at the right time. But uh, uh, we did play a bunch of festivals, and uh, we're very proud of it. And I made that movie touring the Middle East with the, the Black Lips, which um, that was that was a lot of fun. Those guys are a blast, and um, uh, we went um, all over the place. So I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question. So no, uh, but, but to your point about liking to make documentaries, as I'm starting to dip my my big toe into this documentary world with my first feature length video essay that hopefully i'll have my first look at end of february for the finished product okay. um penelope spears who actually got back to me surprisingly i told her i liked her her movies and she, and uh and she oh, said who got, she, back to, who, who got back to you penelope from uh the decline of western civilization and all those oh, movies. Awesome. yeah she's great she um she she said that she did Wayne's world and and all that stuff to pay for making these these documentaries that the studios definitely didn't care about. Is it the same thing for you where you have to do a lot of stuff that <laughs> I have to do not... other jobs to yeah. make these documentaries? Yeah, it's been a bit like that for sure. I haven't made a lot of money off my documentaries. Um I'm very proud of the new one and we're trying to get a record album done about that cuz we think that'll get it juiced a- again. Um it's, I mean, the it, first one's on IRS records. It's a it's a big deal. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. No, the first one was a the first one did really well, and then uh, you know we should we should have had uh, more um, uh, juice out of that. Except the, the the producer had a big drug problem and uh, drank a lot. So that was again, we're going to say it was the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah. Um, I, I do want to. I want to ask a few questions from the audience before I, I, I start. You know, hitting hard on the final pivot. Uh, Bader Meinhof says, "What do you think of John Waters?" Oh, I love John Waters. You know, why? Why? What, what? I hope he does too. I mean, John Waters is one of those who's like a real original. I can, <laughs> anybody who tries to ape him should give it up because. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I love John Waters. And I, I love that when suddenly he's doing these uh, making more money than he ever has because they're making uh, musicals out of his stuff on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. And I used to spend like a lot of my friends that I know, we were like um, revival movie house geeks, which, mm-hmm. you know, now you can download everything. But, you know, we'd go to all these um you know, and, and our things were always like, um, you know, like Ed Wood one week and then, uh, you know, um, uh, watching the Bicycle Thief the next week and then a Louis Boonwell Film Festival followed by, um, 
you know, uh, watching a bunch, you know, it, that, that was kind of the, the extremes that we, we watched. And, uh, uh, we, we go to a lot of movies. There was a, a great, at, at a punk rock venue, they had, a um, for like six weeks in a row, we had, um, Ed Wood movies. And, uh, of course he had passed away, but they, just a lot of those actors were still alive and they would come and speak. Mm-hmm. And it was it was all the punk rockers and everything. We were all there and all the weirdos. And uh, we at first we were asking oddball questions to the actors, and then we realized they were dead serious about the movies. And we became dead serious about them. You know, it's like, and we said, so what? What camera did they use? You know, it's like. Um, but that was fantastic. It was like six weeks in a row on like Sunday afternoon. We all trooped over there, and. Uh, um, you know, and in a weird way, it's like what you were talking about with like um, when when the 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 record store. And by the way, I want to say I just found out record stores are making a comeback. There's a there's a there's a whole series of record stores around the country that are. This guy was explaining to me the other day that mm-hmm. Oakland has the best music scene going right now, and he listed off six bands I've never heard of, and he goes, "You'll hear about them in a year." And they'll be on the festival and then they'll be on the main stage and maybe they will be, but they're breaking out of these little record stores. But anyway, um, you know, when all the DVDs and everything came, you didn't, you know, that's when the revival theaters all kind of went under and they've all kind of made a comeback. We have one here that I've been doing stuff with called the Cine, well, the, which is the, fantastic. The Alamo Ale House. I don't know if you have one of those in Athens or Atlanta. I know it's chained. No, now. they got one in Los Angeles, but I, I know them well because um Athens in particular has has played uh a lot of them over the years mm-hmm. and um uh some of the guys that are at Alamo now used to be at a place called Cine Family in Los Angeles and I did a bunch of stuff there. I did a, a 4th of July screening of uh, Red Dawn and talked about making <laughs> of American insurgents only only through the the lens of uh, Cold War America can you get young American insurgents. Oh. Okay, uh, it, uh, uh, hopefully everybody will like this story. So we make Red Dawn, and mm-hmm. Milius is like very militant about it, right? Mm-hmm. It was actually written by uh, Kevin um, Hart. No, no, no. This filmmaker who made a bunch of films and he he left the film because john took it over and uh so john makes red dawn he's got all this stuff and uh and the movie comes out and and there was protest over it, it was really funny and, yeah uh, they cut the scene <laughs> the mcdonald's scene which is the best scene in the trailer is the mcdonald's the tank <laughs> pointing at mcdonald's is the greatest scene that we never got in cinema history because it's cut out oh, you should have seen and and the first cut was it was not good, and then they they made it good. It, it, it worked, you know, well enough for the movie. But uh, um, anyway, so all these right wing people started getting in on like we're gonna like support Red Dawn and uh, uh, John. Um, it's his now wife. Anyway, he had this girlfriend, and uh, she was interesting, and he used to call her Vietnam because she blew up all the time and uh <laughs> anyway he was he was out somewhere and uh a, an entire color guard five dudes mm-hmm. 
with full dress uniforms. I think they were Marines, but they might have been in the Army, right? Mm -hmm. Come marching up the stairs of our office, right? Mm -hmm. And then they stop in front of my desk, and they're like, we're here to see John Milius. I go, really? <laughs> and I go, well, he's not here right now. It's like, well, we have something for him. And they had this large box, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't know, put it in there. So we put it in, in his office, and uh, he comes back from, I think it was lunch, and he comes back and he goes, oh, what's this? And I go, a color guard came by and dropped it <laughs> off. Good, good, good taxpayer money being spent. And he's like, hmm, well, let's get a crowbar and open it up, right? Mm -hmm. So we go and get, we, we had a crowbar. So, and this, this was my job. I was like 23, 24. It was like, they're all like 12 year olds. And um, anyway, so I go and get a crowbar and we open it up and I start pulling out. And it was these leather framed pictures of, every Republican senator signed, right? <laughs> so we're pulling them out and we're looking at them, right? And, you know, the Democrats were, you know, they were still in charge in the 80s. So it's probably like 40 of them, 42, mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever it is. And we're pulling them out. And John, he's looking at him and he goes, who's that dude? And it's like the senator from North Dakota or something. And I go, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he looks at me and goes, well, if you don't know, nobody else will know. Get that. <laughs> so we take the frame and he gets it. John always used to have a Swiss Army knife. And he pulls out the Swiss Army knife and he cuts out the back mm -hmm. of this signed picture from a Republican senator. Pulls out the back, takes his photo out, gets a, a headshot of his girlfriend, puts it in, puts the back in, sets it on his desk. He goes, ah, now that works. <laughs> <laughs> and then we piled the rest of them in the box and we put it in a, in a, in a storage place. And uh, that was um, that's what we got from the, the, the Republican senators. Um, and. I, I don't know. I wish I'd kept one myself. Um, <laughs> I mean, I wish you would have kept some memorabilia from it. Is Harry Dean Stanton is in? Oh, movie, I love, right? I love Harry Dean Stanton. His his He's, scene. It's a, that's a you know I get a little misty whenever I see that scene where he talks to Patrick Swayze and uh, Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Harry lived in this place up off of Mulholland mm -hmm. with a driveway that was like this, right? And uh, basically, I stayed on the lot while they went to New Mexico. And I, my job was I was the lot liaison, right, to mm -hmm. stay there. And um, so I got to deliver stuff over to Harry's place. And um, uh, dri I drive over there, and it's a nightmare getting in and a nightmare getting out. But I, first, I drop off the script, right? And I knock on the door. Mm -hmm. And Harry comes to the door, and he's like, Hello? And I'd called him before I went over there and mm -hmm. he goes, I said, it's Bill from, you know, from, uh, you know, the studio from Red Dawn. And he's like, is that the Milius picture? And I go, uh-huh. And he goes, what is it? I go, it's the script with your sights. And he's like, oh, so is it the Milius picture? Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And he goes, so what is it? I'm like, it's your sides. He's like, mm. is this the milliest picture? <laughs> so this goes on. And finally I go like, Harry, I got to go. Right. And then it takes me like 20 minutes to get out of the driveway. Right. Mm -hmm. So a couple weeks later, they send me his plane ticket. I got to go and drop it off. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's flying like the next day. And I, I knock on the door and it's like, hey, Harry, it's like me. And he's like, I know you. And I'm like, yeah, it's Bill from the you know movie. And um, <laughs> that you're doing. He's like, he, goes, he goes, what do you got? And I go, it's, it's your plane ticket. And he goes, oh, he goes, when am I leaving? I go tomorrow morning. And he goes, oh, is this the Millius movie? I'm going, uh -huh. <laughs> and he goes, when am I going? I go tomorrow. And. And this goes on for like five minutes, and I go, Harry, I gotta go. Here's your ticket. I got like, and I'm hoping he gets on the plane, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have cell phones back then, and he he got on the plane and he made it out there and he filmed the scene, and you teared up. It's great. <laughs> was he just stoned the whole time? <laughs> I don't know. Harry's a trip. He did he did a bunch of music with people I knew, like Peter Case and. I think he did some stuff with Steve Wynn from the Dream Syndicate. I'm not sure, but okay. Um, he he had some. He actually recorded a couple records, and he's he, you know, he was he was friends with a bunch of people in that you know, Silver Lake Paisley Underground punk scene. They all knew him. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, he used to play over at McCabe's with a bunch of people. So um, he was probably just stoned out of his mind. Probably. I don't know. I I, I don't judge. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> maybe that's why that scene is so good because he has no idea what he's talking about <laughs> probably you're in a concentration camp harry well the, well, the best was okay the, the best was i um okay so we're, we're doing casting for the movie right mm -hmm. and i told i think i told you you know john some people don't believe this but john was really good pals with stanley kubrick right mm -hmm. And Stanley's a bit of an oddball himself. And uh, but anyway, so we're sitting there and a the casting woman's there and she's like, we got all these people. We're going to bring them in. And, you know, John had certain people he wanted, like Ben Johnson and everything. And. Um, and all of a sudden he, he yells at this this woman who's a famous casting person goes like Sterling Hayden, we need Sterling Hayden in here. And she's like. Um, for what part? And John's like. I don't care. I just want to see Sterling. Just bring him in. <laughs> There's no part. And Sterling comes in. It's like, well, what part? And John's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe like, I don't know. And so Sterling's there for 45 minutes. And I don't know if you've ever met Sterling Hayden, but he's um he's a little out there. And not just, you know, from being, you know, Colonel Jack Ripper, General Jack Ripper, or whatever, but um he's he's an oddball too and so john brings him in he's talking for 45 minutes good seeing you sterling and it's like <laughs> why are we doing this it's like because because we could you know okay i do have to ask you this red dawn question mm -hmm. um and this might be a new feature on tir where we do uh Repo man is great i know those people too uh who's that moby bongo all right uh, we might have to do a new feature called um, called Showbiz Stories with uh, with Bill, but uh, <laughs> Superfly plays the Cuban general. Yes, yes, 
And Please I told tell you, I just saw a great that, Vince Jeff. documentary about the making of um, the other one. But no, super. Yes, Ron. Um, what's his Ron name? O'Neal? Ron. Ron O'Neal. Yeah, Ron O'Neill. And uh, yes, he plays the Cuban. <laughs> yeah, learn Spanish. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a really funny story mm-hmm. about one of those scenes. Okay, and he's passed away, and he is a lovely man, but. Um, uh, Buddy, but most of you know him as Patrick Swayze. Buddy was a bit of a knucklehead. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that there's that scene mm-hmm. where, oh God, this great actor, what's his name? One of my favorite a- character actors played the Russian guy. Oh, and, the, yeah, yeah. And he, he comes out, right? And the thing is, he's supposed to go out there and he's like wearing his T-shirt. Mm-hmm. So they were filming in like, he was in like New Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know, but it was some ridiculous thing like 10 below when they were filming, right? Mm-hmm. And he's out there in this T-shirt. And I've seen the rushes, right? <laughs> Patrick can't say his lines to save his life. So they keep reshooting and reshooting. And God, what's his name? Um, fabulous actor. Anyway, he is starting Thomas to Howell? What? No, no, not, Thomas- not, not, not Tommy Howell. It was, uh, uh, no, this is the older guy who played the Russian captain. Um, Here, we got to look this up. Does anybody watching the show know who plays the Russian? <laughs> I know someone's got, uh, got anyway. on uh, Internet Movie Database. And this is the 1984 Red Dawn we're talking about, not that whatever remake. Anyway, he's he's out there in this like white theater in minus ten degrees, and Patrick can't do his lines, and it's like take seventy eight, and <laughs> is so mad. He's getting more and more mad because he's freezing to death. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish I had a tape of that. Um, yeah. So uh, Patrick was, he was an interesting young man too. Um, we were all young. Back oh, then. was it, you're not talking about Powers Booth. No, not Powers Booth. He, uh, he played the, uh, the flight. Oh, was it William player. Smith? William Smith. Yes. William Smith. And he's a fantastic character. He, is actor. he crazy? No, no, actually, he's not at all. He's very straightforward. He's straightforward and crazy? Because he's been in some movies It's like, dude. No, he, he knew how to play crazy, but he's like, yeah, look, for, for anybody who's out there, look up his IMDb. William Smith did some great roles in some really great kind of borderline B movies, but a lot of, a lot of great 70s yeah. movies he's in. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's it's um, yeah, and it, it's super nice guy, just super nice. No, he's not crazy at all. Um, I'm, I'm I've been going. I think I told you if you've been watching the show, you've been hearing me talk about this. I've been going down this rabbit hole of watching. I don't want to say bad, just movies from the '80s, B action movies from the '80s, and uh, he he's in a lot of them. And I want to say he was in this movie I saw. I want to say this was him. Terror in Beverly Hills with Sylvester Stallone's brother, with Frank. With Frank. With Frank Stallone. Okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a Frank story. Please tell so, me a Frank Stallone story. So that guy is I was Frank. I was out of shape and I started boxing at my brother was Freddie Roach's attorney at one point. 
Okay. And so I went over and I started boxing regularly mm-hmm. with, at Freddie Roach's gym. And at one point I was th- three and a O with two knockouts. Um, <laughs> Cause they got me in these club fights. It's crazy. Um, I'll tell you that story in a minute, but anyway, so they had this set of fights and, uh, it was supposed to be, you ever seen that movie where, um, Hillary Swank plays the, um, million dollar baby. The yeah. Million dollar baby, the Clint Eastwood movie, mm-hmm. but what's her face. Who's a really good boxer. The one who kills her. Christy She's Martin a boxer, right? Christy Martin. No, not Christy Martin. It's a, she, it's a, Layla Ali? no, no. Layla used to come in though. Um, Oh, I, I remember she's Dutch, right? She's Dutch American. Her her brother is a big DJ at Ibiza. Anyway, so he he's the one who kills. Um, she's the one who kills Hillary Swank. Anyway, so we're having these club fights, and they became really big. And we had judges, and James Tony always judged, right? The boxing James Freddie, Freddie Roach's mom always judged. And okay. <laughs> my trainer was Freddie's brother Pepper, and so their mom would always vote against me if it was a decision to get back at Pepper. And James Tony, who was my pal, and I used to have to spar with, used to always vote for me no matter what happened. And I fought these close fights anyway. She didn't show up. So Frank, who was really drunk, they made him the third judge. And it was just, his decisions were awful. (laughs) And I lost the fight because of Frank. What did you see, dude? He's like, like, darn, you know, it's like, and I swear, because that was like, I I had, my third fight was this like brutal fight with this Irish guy. And he won the most courageous fighter trophy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, my face was puffed up for a week. Anyway, so then we fought a rematch where we both learned defense and we stayed up. Like, <laughs> we my, my friends were like, defense. what kind of fight was that? <laughs> you know, it's like, because we weren't, we were terrified of getting, having a bloodbath again. So then the fight after that was this one. And so I lost two split decisions in a row. And I was like, because of drunk Frank Stallone. And um, anyway. Frank Stallone, dude. If you watch this movie, I found it on it's Terror in Beverly Hills. Terror in Beverly Hills, and it Frank Stallone. Great. It's 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 one of the most amazing movies because Frank Stallone plays the hero, and he's fighting uh, terrorists. Right. This is this is right when we're fighting all the terrorists because oh, wow. the Canon film people are making all these like super horrible Palestinian propaganda movies. Right. And. Uh, right. Well, yeah, it's kind of post post Red Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. If you're not, if it's not a Russian, if it's not a Russian thing, then it's mm-hmm. like it's a terrorist. Right. And and so Frank Stallone's character puts on. Uh, he he like he doesn't want to fight anymore. Like he's out of the game. Okay. And uh, they 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 kidnap his family, and the only way he's gonna go beat the terrorists is this fucking took his family and so <laughs> they take his family and that's why he's got to do it right and so he grabs a rope <laughs> that's wound up and he puts it around himself right and never uses it <laughs> wow when you watch the this movie, is this is kind of this is kind of great but Bader meinhof just put a shot for my friends which is from barfly 
which was mm -hmm. actually made by Francis Ford Coppola's company and the guy I know, Fred Roos. And that, there's that book, Hollywood, that, uh, what's his name wrote about the making of? Um, who's the, uh, the writer? Bukowski? Yeah, Bukowski. And it's actually a fun book, even though he trashes a couple of people I know. Um, like Bukowski's Bukowski. 80s movies are better, but I, I did like Barfly. And that is a funny reference, Potter Meinhof. Um, <laughs> sorry, go back to Frank. No, 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 no. Speaking, no. speaking mean, of 80s, you know that I'll tell you the greatest movie Penelope Spheris ever made. And my friend who ended up being the head of story at Pixar, he's the one who called me. He goes, Bill, you have to see this movie. Penelope Spheris made a punk rock Billy Jack, and it's fantastic. <laughs> What's it called? It's not dudes. Suburbia or whatever it is. <gasps> I didn't know she did suburbia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With all the punk rockers and uh, yeah. in uh, Orange County with the uh, peg leg Andre and uh, fleas in it. And uh, the junkie that killed himself is the lead, unfortunately. Um, but that's a great, great movie. And my friend Joe was right. It is Billy Jack with punks. It's fantastic. <laughs> that sounds like something she would do. It's a... It, it's it's a really I really like that movie and I and and I I think she's underrated and the yes. and the, the the Metal Years is that's a that's a hysterical movie too. The way she does the seriousness, if you want to call it serious, of the first movie, you know, juxtaposed to the over the top ridiculousness that is that sequel and still that scene to this day. Um, I think she kind of makes that scene what it is. She 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 puts it kind of on a pedestal of this oh, is yeah. everything so, that's wrong with the 80s. Here you go. Yeah, she 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 figures out like that it's it's done really well. It's like I the metal years, if you haven't seen it, um is 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 good. And uh um so you know she made a third one. Yes, I've seen it, but only like once. I've it's seen the dark. first one in the metal years a bunch of times, but the, the third one is really dark and I, and I it took me forever to find it. Amazon actually has all three up now. And that's why oh. I contacted her. Cause I, I saw the third one and I was like, you know, I feel like this third one was interesting because you did stop giving a damn about the music because the music became so cliche. Mm -hmm. And she actually follows the kids that listen to it and follows mm -hmm. the life of these kids in a punk house. And I found that way more interesting interesting than than i found because these other movies are literally about the music and the quote-unquote culture let's just say yeah, around yeah, yeah. This music and I, this third know, I, one is like eh. i did i did see it but i didn't remember it so i probably want to see it again it's dark but, man it's really dark yeah it, it's funny because and and she's the, the other my, my other friend she hasn't gotten back to me i think something because somebody wrote something to her on Facebook in this little clubhouse we got mm -hmm. and um, she didn't respond um, who, you know, who, yeah, uh, who we're trying to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, so I don't know. And she might be busy or something, but um, that whole, there's a whole kind of group of, of strong female directors mm -hmm. in the late eighties, early nineties. Mm -hmm. And they didn't work in the second half of the nineties. Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, the basic thing is is sexism, I guess. But um, I'm not. I'm not. 
there's got to be a bunch of reasons because prestige television brought them all back right mm-hmm. um you know there's mike d's wife uh what's her name who i know and i can't remember her name who did love in a 45 and she did some great movies and um and 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 allison and and uh penelope and i mean they the early era of the um of the film festivals when they first when they first started like there was a bunch of these strong women directors and yeah do you I don't think know. it was because the studios had all this excess money from the blockbuster years and they were kind of throwing it at whoever so you, this is the also you know a little well, after the rise be- of spike lee and yeah i mean it, it, I don't know. The second half of the '90s are weird. I mean, and, and indie films were kind of ruled by Carvey, and you know, he he was more apt to get some, you know, English director or something. You know, <laughs> is is it? Do you think a lot of it had to do with Harvey's? Uh... I think it probably did because he dominated. You know, he like a lot yeah. of stuff. You know, so I don't I don't know for sure because I I um you know I was kind of doing my own thing, but it was it was a weird time. You know. Um, cause the movie I had at Sundance was directed by a woman. I had a lot of women executives tell me, you know, you guys should be blowing up big and they're, they're holding you down. And it was a, it was a weird period in the middle to late nineties where it was all these kind of really ugly men's films, you know? Um, <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, yeah, that is, that is, it's a, if, yeah, if you think about the nineties, you know, for a long time on Facebook, you know, if anybody's with me there my my background photo was me vita loca because that's still one of my favorite movies i went to go see that in the theater uh when i was a kid um and yeah a, a lot of these people i don't see their names like i did so prominently especially penelope because she did wayne's world Catherine bigelow point break there yeah. you go <laughs> that's, that's, that's a huge movie point break was a huge movie oh Catherine bigelow had big movies um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, and I'm then there was a, who was the woman that did uh, what's the army movie where the guys getting the bombs out of the ground? Oh God, what's it called? That's Full, Catherine I, Bigelow. Hurt Locker. Yeah, that's Catherine Bigelow, isn't it? Oh, is it the same woman? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I guess she did all the big movies. But she oh. for a while didn't. She didn't work after that. Um, the Rodney King uh, futuristic movie, which wasn't very good, but the Rodney King futuristic movie, like it was, a, it was took place in an apocalyptic LA, and they recreated the Rodney King beating. It was called. Um, <laughs> I don't remember. I think we were making shit up. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not making this. Th- you can't Could, make this stuff up. Can, can you get a? Can you get a time machine and bring me into the room when that was getting pitched? Because I would have loved to have heard that pitch meeting. Okay. Well. Okay. Here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> well, it was. It wasn't really about that. It was this futuristic. Uh, um, uh... <laughs> we're gonna kick his ass again. But in the future this time, <laughs> that sounds insane. Um, I hit the wrong thing here. Are you looking? Did you Google future Rodney? <laughs> no, I'm looking up Catherine Bigelow. <laughs> Bigelow. Here we go. Why? Um, why? Why you're looking up? <laughs> what the hell? 
Um, strange days. That was that was about. I never saw it. It takes place in a futuristic LA, and the culmination is. I'm trying to remember. I think it's it's some black actress gets beaten like Rodney King. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Did you get enough of this in the nineties? Point Break was big. Yeah, well, the nineties is a, it's kind of a weird point. Anyway, uh, this guy. Uh, Bay Planner says Strange Days was awesome. She later did Detroit. Yes, Detroit I liked, but some people didn't like it. Yes, okay-ish I think is a good word. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm trying to. I, no, I, no, no. I want to. I want to ask the 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 last question because we're we're going over an hour here, but that's fine. This is uh this is pop life. We can do that. Yes, Ralph Fiennes is in it. Swiss beats or whatever it is. <laughs> what about? your pivot into you leave the world of film and i know you say eric garcetti found you on a film set mm -hmm. but why do you stay in politics because i'm going to go out on a limb and say that you could probably make more money um in in uh well, in film and, and music <clears throat> maybe i don't know um there's a few things that happened in my life and I wanted to have one. I wanted to have a steady job and one, I wanted to do some public service and I had, um, you know, just a couple of things that, that, you know, that I was still working on, but didn't, didn't quite happen. And maybe I'll work on them now. Um, now that they're putting a film studio in Athens. Um, you know, when I first started doing the, 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 um, the the pol political thing um i just started working mostly campaigns and i was really good at it and mm -hmm. i actually made pretty good money you can make decent money on campaigns and it was steady money but i would go back and forth um like i said i worked on a project for quite a while with my friend joe um that was off of pixar it wasn't at pixar and that was why we were doing it um and um but uh, yeah, I just wanted to work full time in public service, and and uh, that's mainly it. Um, and so I did, and I I looked at a couple of different places to work, and I ended up I, I had two choices. One was working in the mayor's office, and one was working for the city council member, who I still really like. But um, you know, we made some mistakes. But he was a legend, and. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, had done a lot of great things as far as uh, um, working with immigrants. He'd done the driver's license bill and the DREAM Act. Um, and, uh, you know, I saw it as a challenge to try and do something. Um, I, 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 I don't know how I feel about Los Angeles right now, but, um, <laughs> you know, I just, I just kind of threw myself into it. And it's, um, it just, it was just good to have something solid and, um, you know, offline, I can tell you more about it because um, yeah, yeah, and I'm trying to I'm trying to keep the 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 comments you know where we don't you know get you in in too much trouble. But um, you and I have spoke a lot about Los Angeles, and and of course I speak a lot about California in general. I am a California native. I mm -hmm. love California so much so that I live in Mexico. Right. Um, but I do love California. I really do. Um, and I find the politics of the state fascinating 
Um, we took, of course, we, we talked about it uh, last night with with Randy Shaw, who's been involved in in politics for forty plus years, you know, dealing with housing and the unhoused. Um, for for those of you that are new to the show or newer to the show, one of my early interviews was with Alex Vitale, who wrote the book The End of Policing, who also started in San Francisco back in the in the seventies, and he was one of the people I think with Randy that started the Street Sheet which is the newspaper that the homeless people sell um, and, and make themselves. Uh, yeah. They got one like that up in LA, in Seattle too. Yeah. Yeah. Or something. yeah. And um, working in LA uh, to me, much more segregated area than where I'm from. I'm from a magical bubble in, in the Bay area, in the East Bay. Well, you and I have talked about that is it's, What's interesting about Los Angeles is just how segregated it is Mm -hmm. in this kind of, you know, to the point of like, you know, they make TV shows about Los Angeles by people that live in the Hollywood Hills and it has nothing to do with Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. They're still making cop shows about in LA and it'll look like LA looked like in 1989. <laughs> it's like, this takes place in South Central. I'm like, well, where's the Takaterias? You know, I mean, like, I like, where's the, where's the Latinos, yeah. man? Yeah. It's like, have you been to South Central recently? Because, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, this looks, this looks a lot more like Palmdale to me or Long Beach. <laughs> you know? Damn. And, uh, you know, it, it's, I, I told you that story because I, I, for those in the, in the chat room and I'm falling in love with all of you. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, you know, it's, it's um, where I was, like lived and where I was doing public services area called Northeast Los Angeles. That's um, was five years ago declared the only hip neighborhood in Los Angeles. I mean, in the United States by a, a, an international magazine, we were the only one who made the top 50 cool neighborhoods and they did a whole Vogue spread and it's changed a lot in the last five to 10 years. And Highland park is kind of the central area and um, it's changed a lot. But when I first moved there, it was still pretty much a Latino neighborhood and I would have friends in the film industry and they come over and they go, wow, there's a lot of Latinos in your neighborhood. And I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of Latinos in LA, buddy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because they they would live in the Hollywood Hills and they wouldn't even know what, what the makeup of the city was. And then they're making movies about it and they're making, you know, it's like, it's very, very segregated. And, you know, there's a thing that a lot of rich people in, LA do is they send their kids to certain sets of schools and my sort of kids they went to one of those schools and they and there's, there's a reason they went there was because it's a really good school but sometimes it was weird because I'd sit there and go like you know there's one you know there's one black kid at the school and he's adopted right mm. and um, you know it's a bunch of rich white kids and they are all bonded together. So when they go off to college and then when they start in the film industry, you know, who are they going to hire, you know? And for all the talk of all the, you know, oh, woke is killing Hollywood, you know, it's like, 
if you still look at the at the at the you know, I was looking up before this because I thought we were going to talk about drill rappers and hip hop. But, <laughs> but I was looking up all the all the Atlantic execs are all sixty year old white men, right? Mm-hmm. And they're the kings of hip hop, really. But that's the way it's always been. But that but that doesn't make any sense, you know. It doesn't, you know. And and the thing is, they keep the system that way, and that's why I like your shows, and I like what Pascal says because. You know, th- that's where capitalism, like, really, you know, it's like this club. It's this tribe, right? And and we'll, we'll, we'll let, you know, we'll let Jay-Z come into it in the NFL for five minutes, you know? But, yeah, you know, and, and, and Jay-Z is the perfect one because he's not threatening at all. He just plays the game, you know? Which there's nothing wrong with that on some levels. But, you know, you look at some of the people that, you know, like when when you did the live show and somebody brought up Paul Robeson, I mean mm-hmm. Paul Robeson could have been Jay Z. I mean shit, he yeah he, he was one of the few like legit black stars in the '30s doing musicals. You know, he did kind of uh, everything wonderfully. Like yeah, he could have, he, <laughs> what did he do wrong? No, he could he could have been Sidney Portier before Sidney Portier. You know, because yeah. he actually got to do roles where he was you know he wasn't the butler, right? Othello. You know, he, yeah. He and then, the, you know, but, it's like, you know, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick to my guns and I'm going to, you know, and, and there's a great documentary because you guys were bringing up Lorraine Hansberry. There's a great documentary about Lorraine Hansberry and Paul Robeson was like a really good pal of hers. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I grew up learning about Paul Robeson, it's like, you know, oh, and then he, and then he became a communist. He fell off the earth and we blacklisted him. You never saw him again. Paul Robeson was doing all kinds of cool mm-hmm. stuff in the United States in the fifties and the early sixties, you know, it's like, but I don't know where he's going with this. I'm sorry. <laughs> read, but, read George Horn's book, uh, Gerald, George, Gerald Horn's book about Paul Robeson. His, his biography on Robeson is, is very, very, very thorough. Um, yeah. you, you know, it, it's, LA is an interesting place to me because again, it's oh, we're talking about the segregation of LA. It's re- it is really, really segregated, and it's when you come here. Like it's funny because when I made that movie thirty years ago in Athens, Athens is very segregated, and it's not nearly as segregated now. It still has its issues, and I talk to people about it, and it's one of the kind of exciting things I'm hoping I, to get to be part of. And I have been, and and if you get a chance to see my new my, my new Athens movie, that's part of what it's about. And um, I, would, I did notice that with the with the newer film that you're you're showing, you you could have called it Athens, not so white, right? Because first- yeah, <laughs> but, but but that that's been done by those people, and it was it was funny because Burtis, a few different people told me about you know what was going on, and Burtis Downs, REM's manager, was one of them. He's fantastic. And his thing is about the schools, which are incredibly segregated in Athens, Mm -hmm. Um, slightly less than before, but still, you know, but L.A., you know, if you go to most L.A. schools on the east side, it's, you know, 99 percent Latinos Mm -hmm. with a couple of black kids. You know, it's like that's what it is. There's no white kids going to school over on the east side of L.A. Or a lot of black people moving to like Lancaster and places like that. Oh, but that's where all the black people live is Lancaster and Palmdale after they've been, you know, driven out of South Central, which and I was talking to you about that. I mean, there was this whole thing that happened in the, I guess we call them the aughts, right? Mm-hmm. 
where there were these wars because the, um, the, it was the, the black on brown fights and it was at the schools and they were literally having to shut the schools down because of the brawls. Jesus. And basically they moved a bunch of people out. Like one group, one tribe moved the other tribe out, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody wanted to talk about it because it's a difficult conversation to have. But not having that conversation doesn't mean it's not happening, mm -hmm. you know? And I think for somebody like me, it's a difficult conversation to have because, like, where do I, where do I fit in that, right? Mm -hmm. And particularly, like, the Democratic Party, they don't want to talk about it because they, those are two of their, their tribes, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I moved to Highland Park, and, and it was funny because when I was campaigning, it's like, and I told you that the young lady was running against us. We, I want to bring back that '90s Highland Park. The, the, there's a, they're one of the toughest gangs in the city used to own Highland Park, and they're called the Avenues. There's two hardcore gangs, Highland Park and the Avenues, mm -hmm. and the streets are called the Avenues there. So they're they're like they're not the like. Yeah, that's one thing you find, yeah, that's one thing you find out about yeah. gang names. This is like they're not they're, they're not like that creative, right? No, it's where you live. There's one gang called Happy Valley because they're from Happy Valley. And I'm like, what kind of gang name is that? <laughs> you call yourself Happy Valley? Who's going to be it's where you live? Right? Anyway, it's where you live. It's so Highland Park and the Avenues. But the Avenues, the Avenues are the ones that like in 2008, they brought in 5,000 um, cops in riot gear from like Arizona and stuff and the FBI to shut down their clubhouse over in Glassell Park. I mean, and then they hauled them all off to prison. Um and then a lot of them are getting out now. But anyway, it used to be that people from certain neighborhoods in L.A. did not go to Highland Park because they knew they would be shot on the spot. And that has changed. And it is a good thing that it has changed. It is a good thing that I can sit and have you know lunch with you like we did and not have to worry about somebody from the avenues rolling up. <laughs> um, it's like well isn't isn't that the problem like i've said this before on the show a while back and i'm sure again this is for og listeners i was putting up flyers in like 2015 for my band lefin in west oakland and what huh what was your band's name lefin absolute du monde the absolute end of the world wow right? well you should have gotten beaten up for a name like that <laughs> <laughs> That's what Ted from Flipper said. Get a fucking shorter name. <laughs> Flipper, that Come is a great band. Not everybody knows. Flipper is one of the greatest punk rock bands ever. So anyway. So shout out to Ted Falcone and, and the Flipper guys. My my good friend, Ted Falcone. But anyway, so I'm putting up these flyers, right? And uh, and because my whole thing is like, I'm about to go old school, put up flyers, fuck this Facebook event shit. I'm putting up flyers, and these dudes on the block see me, and they, they go, what is that? And I go, it's a rock show. And they go, hmm. And I'll be candid with what they said. Is there going to be bitches there? I bet there's going to be bitches there. And I said, nah, you know, not really. <laughs> I was like, whatever. And so I stop and I was like, you know, I want, let, me, let me holler at these guys. And I go, how do you guys like the changes here in West Oakland? Because West Oakland, you know, if you see the movie Blind Spotting, there's some truth to that with the city changing drastically, right? Right. And they look at me and they go, we love it. They said, it's safe for our kids at night. 
And they said, we see women riding bikes at night. Why wouldn't we like that? And it was kind of, you know, interesting to hear, right? I mean, they're not going to get into the real nitty gritty. Like, we have a whole new client base. <laughs> we, can, we can charge more for the same thing. <laughs> Capitalism is great. <laughs> well, you know, that's the, that's the thing about... See, everybody's always afraid of change. That's one of the things they say about, like, people stay in bad situations just because they're scared of change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, I, the housing prices all over the country are too darn high. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Um, but the neighborhood I was in, and there's like, oh, gentrification. Most of the new small restaurants are owned by women and people of color. Mm -hmm. And they're being successful. And there was this, there's these two young men and they're like Latinos. And one of them, and they, they were, I'm not going to tell you which restaurant, but he said it was okay. One of them is DACA, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other brother was born in, in, in uh, the United States. And the one was born in Mexico. And um, they got attacked by these kind of like hardcore anti-gentrification um, people of their same, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. look like them, right? Mm -hmm. Because they they were charging $10 for their asparagus toast or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And the place is jammed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people love this place, right? And I, I didn't say it to the activists, but I was saying to somebody in my office, it's like, isn't that what they want, that these young men are charging the, the, the gentrifiers $10 for toast and buying a house. Uh, I mean, you, you want people to be successful. And I, I know you got to find a balance. And I think the one thing, you know, we're not going to get, we're not going to overrule capitalism overnight, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. And one of the things Pascal said the other day that I just loved, and I think it was the Saturday show is like, do you want people to have a better situation while you're getting there? Because he said he does. And I think that's the thing. You want people to have better lives. Now, the best life would be is if we were able to make it a more, in my opinion, mm -hmm. in my humble opinion, <laughs> a more socialistic situation where people's housing, people's health care, a, a certain amount of income, their food, that yeah. they're okay, right? Because that's what most people want, you know? They want a certain amount of, like, you know, and be able to raise your kids and take them to a good school. And to do that, you usually need, <laughs> you, you, you need some sort of socialism to get there. Yeah. And, um, but in the meantime, do you want pe good people to succeed and have better lives? I do. And I, that's all, you know. I think it's, I think it. Pascal, Pascal, Moby, Boingo. Yes. I, I think, okay. I think what happens is gentrification becomes a word for a lot of people that means white people moved in my neighborhood. Right. Instead of a gentrifying class moved in my neighborhood, which, which isn't necessarily well, all white, right? Yeah, I'm I'm first generation Canadian, so what it means to me is that Kate and uh, 
<laughs> William are moving into my hood. <laughs> but that's me. <laughs> and, but and, anyway, I'm sorry. You know, when we think about you know major metropolitan areas and, and people think about gentrification, everybody thinks about rent prices going up and, and all this other stuff. But Oakland, you know, is also kind of an interesting case study because Oakland, you also have things like moms for housing, where uh, they commandeered. They found out that there was a bunch of houses that were owned by a corporation that were vacant, and they commandeered one and and uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of bad pressed the owners into selling it to the city, right? And that's one example. And and of course, you know, it's hard to do that on a massive level because you need a certain amount of attention, but you also need a movement with you that is going to put pressure on electeds, real pressure on electeds. But to you get know what's interesting kind of is my boss tried to do that with a with a building, right? Mm-hmm. And it's still they're still talking about trying to get the city to buy the building, right? Mm-hmm. And I yeah, can the city buy all the buildings where people are being, you know, pushed out? No, they can't, right? Mm-hmm. But at least in this one building, and we got so much grief because we couldn't move it along, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like untold grief and the activists, they were never happy, right? But if you don't try, and I think people need to be applauded when they try to make a change that can get better, you know? Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, I think that, I mean, that's that's the other thing. And you were talking about that. And I, I, I uh, going back to homelessness, you know, it's like when I was spending my time, you know, in the Middle East, you know, you sit there in Northern Iraq and Kurdistan, they find it shameful that people are, were out intense and they were out intense because of a war you know and they would get them inside and they would use half-finished shopping malls they would use old prisons and things like that but they would get them inside right Mm -hmm. because they personally found it offensive and they didn't like it and i think there's a there's a whole bunch we've talked about there's i mean there's so many issues with with the unhoused Mm -hmm. and um you know yes there are drug problems yes our mental health thing is sick but also the fact that we've kind of let it be okay is, you know, and I'm not talking about going and, and you know, with the riot squads and moving on. I'm, I'm talking about yeah. finding, a, finding a way to move people into a more permanent housing situation. And I, I know that's complicated and you know that's complicated. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does know how complicated it is. Mm-hmm. But, but we have to, like, you have to make the effort. And I think a lot of people, they just drive past and, and go tis, 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 where my city's probably going to hell. But there's something that they're able to do. You know, if, 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 if Kurdistan can move people inside during wars, and like they, they had the same thing with the Syrian thing, right? They had yeah. a whole bunch of them up there by the hook, and they got them indoors. And it didn't take them like years. It took them months. Well, as yeah. as we as we will sign off because we're hitting on two hours, and I want to. I know it's late where you are. Um, Kevin DeLeon, I think he's uh-huh. District Fourteen. Am I saying it right? Is that District Fourteen? District 14 he's in? Yeah. So he's downtown LA, uh-huh. right? And he's got the Cecil in his district. 
Yes, he has a cease on his district, and he was trying to do something with it. And he was trying to get the city. This has been his thing. He did the whole, you know, tiny houses uh, thing, and he jumped on it, and, you know, yeah. Um, But he's getting pushed back now for being in a room. Um, Have we lost the plot somewhere? Um, Well, yeah, I mean... You and I have had that discussion. I mean, that's what happened with that whole thing. That's about power plays and everything. And yes, it would be nice if they would get back to work because they got lots of work to do. A lot of work but, to do. Uh, you know, um, yeah. I mean, I I don't know Kevin that well, but he has a great staff. And you know, there was there was actually really big news in L.A. the other day, and and nobody even noticed. What was it? But well, before Kevin, mm-hmm. the the council member was this guy. Um, what's his name? Um, I'm forgetting everybody's name. Uh, but he's the one. He's going to prison for nine years, right? Black guy? He, no, no, he's Latino. Um, I'm I'm getting old. I can't remember. Anyway, it was a big deal, and everybody thought he he had pled not guilty right mm-hmm. and everybody thought that a lot more stuff was going to come out if he went to trial mm-hmm. well he pled guilty the other day and he's going to jail for ten nine years um oh i, I think i know jose Weizar. jose Weizar, and he was on track to be the next mayor because mm-hmm. he went to he went to harvard and princeton right Mm-hmm. And he was born in Mexico, so he could play both sides. He could go in with all the upscale elites, and I went to Princeton, mm-hmm. and and so did you. And and he, he could go out in the streets, and and I was born in Mexico, and mm-hmm. he was really corrupt and a bad guy. Basically, I can say that now because he's going to prison. And, <laughs> um, he did like punk rock, but anyway. Um, <laughs> He pled guilty the other day, mm-hmm. and there's I'm sure there's a bunch of people in town who um, let out a, a sigh of relief when he pled guilty. And with all this other stuff, it was like, and, and where's the L.A. Times doing a, a, an examination of that? Because, you know, there's a lot of lot of stuff that Jose did. And, and one of the weird things is his constituents loved him. Because he delivered for him, but he did a lot of bad stuff, and um, uh, the fact that he pled guilty should have been like national news, because there was some FBI paperwork from like five years ago when he first got arrested, and the names on it were pretty interesting. So um, I'm sure a lot of people in Los Angeles and other places throughout the state probably were like. Jose's taking one for the team. So, uh, so I do want to, I, w- I want to bring this up and this isn't to defend anyone. It's just to make a point. So someone's talking about the uh, Kevin DeLeon. Didn't he try to choke a dude? Uh, it, you're no, making no, it no. He, he, he pushed the guy back. The other guy, uh, it was, yeah, it was awful. Well, well, I mean, bigger than that, we're acting as if someone just, he was walking around choking people. I mean, first of all, he's a city council member. I don't know why people think he's above a certain reproach and he's not going to put hands on you. If I was Alderman Jason Miles, I'd probably put hands on you if you got in my face like that. 
And, yeah, and actually, his chief of staff is very nice, Jennifer. <laughs> he she got she got hurt in the melee. I think that's why he got he got so so angry. But bigger than that, it's like there's a there's a there's a bill they can't even vote on because no one wants to bring it up, which is you have this hotel that's a quarter capacity that's in downtown LA. It's literally right next to Skid Row. The uh-huh. hotel now is like, look, we're gonna put all it's gonna be a homeless hotel. Can't uh-huh. fill it. You have a, a proposal to say why we can find the money, let's find the money and fill it. Can't even be a talking point now because of this dude being in a room where as w- w- what we've been trying to say on this show is racial coalition politics happens across the country. And that's just how it sounds when you're dividing up districts. It's not pretty. I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, the, the, Redistricting is evil all across the country. I don't know if there's a better way to do it. Um, But it shouldn't... Everyone thinks like... Because I just watched what happened with the redistricting. It's like... They're like, oh, let the public, you know, make phone calls in. And there were all these people cheating on how to make the phone calls. And I told you, USC had a phone bank to to get what they wanted. There's so many interests... They taught people how to get in, and it was just like my friend who always gets the tickets from the local radio station, right? <laughs> it was just like that. And they were literally teaching them, and it's like, hi, I'm from the, this is what I want. And then they were there sitting down at USC because it was what USC wanted. And, um, you know, that I'm not saying, I, I, I don't know what I'm saying. I just know redistricting needs to be redone. and probably needs to be done by courts and courts are not great. And, you know, uh, we have a Supreme court that probably needs 22 people on it. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, re, re, redistricting is about power. And in it places is. like LA, it's about racialized coalition power. Let's mm-hmm. be honest. And one of so, the things I'm telling you, for those of you in the chat room, um, the, they started talking about this discussion saying that some people were saying, well, it was wrong because they were trying to put Latinos in one district. Everybody was trying to put everybody in one district, but that one of the particular districts was the district I worked in, which was mandated by the courts to be majority Latino because it used to be, they were all white people on the district because of redistricting. So you can't say that you shouldn't be talking about making a district Latino. If the courts are mandating that it's Latino. It's insane. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but <laughs> it's it's again it's it's a it's a it's, it's a conversation. The, the thing I didn't like about the the way that it was getting reported was let's just report this racial issue and racial grievance. And right. I was talking and to like a woman, I, and like I told you, it seemed like most of it was to take out the head of the labor union because it was done from inside the labor union, and they took him out, and they wanted him out wrong for a long time and all this other stuff has blown up but the the people who did it got what they wanted they took the labor head out and i'm not like we we can have another discussion off <laughs> people say ron's corrupt and i'm not going to disagree but anyway um yeah and our labor unions and, and historically our labor unions have had issues you know um We've all watched The Sopranos. 
Um, <laughs> well, on that note, let's get Bill out of here before he uh, gets a knock on the door. We don't want we don't want Luca Brasi suspicious. I will say, does Bill have any hope for the new progressive DSA council candidates in LA? Yes and no. Um, uh, the person who took our spot is a young woman named Eunices Hernandez. And I will tell you what I hope for the district and for LA is that she becomes a really good city council person because they need it. And uh, I'm not sure she knows what she stepped into, but she's finding out. And uh, so I am, I am, I am eternally hopeful that people will get better and um, learn what needs to happen. And um, uh, but I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I'm here. And uh, we have Orts Memorial is on Saturday, and Pylons playing Saturday night, so it'll be a big Athens day. And uh, for using the chat, I tried to read as much of it as I could. I thought you guys were fantastic. Um, so, uh, and yes, if I'm allowed to be brought back, I will. Um, what was that? Fluffy cuts and harps. So, so heaven doesn't have fluffy clouds and harps. It's a wall of Marshall stacks keeps shredding. <laughs> okay. I'm going to end on this. For those of you who don't know, one of the greatest punk rock moments was actually done by a metal guy. Look up Cal Jam Richie Blackmore Destroys Stage. And he had a bunch of marshals that weren't real. And mm -hmm. he lit them on fire, but that's only half of it. It goes on for 20 minutes, and uh, ABC tried to sue Deep Purple afterwards. It's a fascinating story, but just <laughs> watching the destruction is unbelievable. And you can find it on YouTube. Anyway. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much for hanging out. Just so you guys know, I think I, me and Bill, what, like three, four hours, hung out with Bill in, in real life in, in SoCal. And uh, definitely soaked in as much of these stories as possible. It's hard to 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 nail him down on on one thing because he's lived a life. He has lived a life. And uh, when this this documentary gets done, I definitely want to do a screening uh, in Athens. Cool. Let's do it. So I'll be hollering. All right. Thanks to everybody. Thanks, Jason. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, guys. We'll be back tomorrow night with a show on something I can't even say, because if I say, then this show will get banned. So we are out. Thank you.